I'd like to ask you to turn to the seventh chapter of the book of Mark. I'd like to uh, teach you from Mark 7 and uh, Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes as we have it in that uh, section of Scripture. I want to begin reading the first by reading the first five verses, which gives us the uh, setting for his discourse. Mark 7, 1 through 5. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with unclean, that is, ceremonially unwashed hands. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? That gives us the uh, occasion for what follows. In chapter 6, we're told that on the prior day, Jesus had fed the 5,000 close to the little city of uh, Bethsaida on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And then the disciples got into the boat and rowed across to Gennesaret on the northwest end of uh, the sea. Jesus, walking across the water, met them in the middle of the evening. And when they arrived at Gennesaret, they were surrounded by people, uh, those that are described here in the last part of chapter 6, very needy people, sick, uh, people possessed by demons, afflicted in various ways, and Jesus began to heal them. And it was on this occasion that the Pharisees and the scribes or the teachers of the law asked Jesus this question. Now, it's very apparent that they had missed entirely the point of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' concern for those in need. Uh, their concern was with a uh, matter of ceremonial uncleanness, that in the feeding of the 5,000, neither Jesus nor his disciples had washed their hands. Now, they weren't really concerned about hygienic matters. It wasn't a matter of bad manners or good hygiene. It was a question of ceremonial cleanness or uncleanness. And uh, we need to understand, like Mark's Gentile readers, what, uh, what uh, was involved. Uh, Mark, as you may know, was writing for Gentiles. The book of Mark is an evangelistic tract for non-Jews. It was written under the, uh, the uh, headship of Peter, one of the apostles. Uh, Mark wrote under his authority and wrote to explain the gospel to people outside of Israel, to Gentiles. And that's why you have these, these explanatory mo uh, notes from time to time about the Pharisees and the sort of things that they did. Now, the Pharisees were the ultra-conservative wing of Judaism. They were the fighting fundamentalists. Uh, they were the, the custodians of the law, those who believed in the, in the inspiration and authority of Scripture. It was their... Uh, one of their primary purposes to pass on the scriptures to the next uh, generation. And so they regarded the text very highly and they preserved it very, very carefully, right down to the most minute details of the text. They were concerned about scripture. They believed the scriptures. They believed in miracles in contrast to the Sadducees, the, the more liberal element in their day. The, the, the Sadducees didn't believe anything. They didn't believe in the inspiration of of portions of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in miracles. We would say today they're the liberals, the more radical uh, end of uh, the theological uh, spectrum. These were the Sadducees. But the Pharisees loved the scriptures. 
and they regarded them very highly, and they believed the scriptures. And it's these people that, uh, that confronted Jesus on this occasion, the, the Pharisees and their scribes, or Bible teachers. The scribes were teachers. And you always see in the New Testament Pharisees and scribes linked together because the Pharisees were the only ones who regarded Scripture highly enough to teach them. That's why you had, they had scribes. They, they believed in, in teaching the Bible. Now, let me give you a bit of background to this discussion so you know what's going on. Uh, again, we, like Mark's readers, need to have the details filled in a bit. Most of you know who Ezra was in the Old Testament. He was the first scribe, as far as we know. Uh, Ezra was also one who regarded the scriptures very highly and who taught them. Uh, in Ezra, the author of Ezra, the book of Ezra, we're told that Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. He was a Bible teacher. He taught uh, the people that came back from exile. And after Ezra, there were a number of other Bible teachers, generation after generation of teachers, who began by teaching the Old Testament, because that's all they had. But uh, eventually, the teachers began to teach the interpretations of teachers. And so you had interpretations of interpretations, and then interpretations of interpreters who interpreted the Scripture. And this went on and on and on until a vast body of literature was built up. And this was called the Mishnah. Uh, Mishnah means the second. And to the Jews, it was the second law. There was the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and there was the Mishnah, which was the second law. And uh, in terms of authority, they weighed out the Mishnah as equal with, with Scripture. There are some uh, very involved debates in rabbinic writings about uh, how they should regard the Mishnah. And it was generally agreed that it, it had equal authority with the Torah, the law, the, the Old Testament. And uh, they continued to add to this body of literature until it, it became what we call today the Talmud. I'm sure most of you have heard that, that term. That's the, it's an encyclopedic commentary on Jewish thought. If you go down here to the Boise Public Library and they have a Talmud down there, it's about 35 volumes. It looks like the, the Encyclopedia Americana. Uh, and in, 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 in Aramaic or in Hebrew, it's about 63 volumes. It's just an enormous body of literature. Interpretations of interpretations of interpretations of interpretations. Uh, I have a copy of the first page of the Talmud here. I'm sure you can't see it. Those of you on the front row can. But the, set, the, the material here in the center is the Mishnah. That's what they had. Most of this they had during Jesus' day. This particular section of the Mishnah deals with Deuteronomy 6, which is called in, in Jewish thought the Shema. Yeah, you know, Deut Deuteronomy 6 1 says, you uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind. This was, the, this was the central thought of Judaism. And this particular section here deals with the Shema, but it doesn't trans uh, interpret it as we would interpret the Bible today. It's a discussion on when the Shema should be said, because the Shema was always said after the evening sacrifice. And the question is, if you're out on the town or you're out hunting or fishing or whatever and you come in at 4 o'clock in the morning, is it too late to say the Shema? And so this, this, this section deals with that issue. When should it be said? Now, along the margins, you have other comments by rabbis, and these are commentaries not on Deuteronomy 6, but on this section. This is the way the rabbis interpreted the Mishnah. The section over here 
deals with the commentary on the commentary. In other words, they're interpreting what the rabbi said here. And down here at the bottom, you have a little section that's called uh, uh, galion. It means uh, margins. And this is the commentary on the margins. And so you have commentaries on commentaries on commentaries. Now, I don't say this to make fun of the Jewish people because I love the Jewish people. But I'm saying this is how far one can go if, if Bible study becomes an end in itself. And this is what had happened. You see, the end of the law for, Jew, for Jews is the Talmud. The Bible became an end in itself. They studied the Bible simply to study the Bible. They became so preoccupied with the minutiae, they missed the, the end of, of the Old Testament, which is Christ. We know from Paul's writings that the end of the law is, is the Lord Jesus for righteousness. He's the one who brings about righteousness. But for the Jew of Jesus' day and for our day, it's the Talmud. Because the Bible became an end in itself, you see. And these traditions, the marginal notes in the Mishnah and the Talmud, became the authority for Judaism. And was weighed out as equal in authority with, with the scriptures. And you see, this is the sort of thing that was behind the question that, that the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus. It was a question of ceremonial hand washing. Now, fortunately, we have in the Mishnah the very section that, that the, that the, that the uh, Pharisees were referring to. There is one of, there's a section here called hands, and it deals with ceremonial hand washing. And it reads like this. The hands are susceptible to uncleanness. What I say to our kids all the time. And they are rendered clean by pouring over them water up to the wrist. That makes a great deal of sense. They're right, of course. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand and the hand becomes clean... But if he poured both the first water and the second beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. You see, they go beyond to give further instruction on how one should wash his hands. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone and then bethought himself and poured the second water over both hands, they remain unclean. If he poured the first water over both hands and then bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, his one hand alone is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it remains clean. And it goes on and on and on, describing how, how they should wash their hands. And what it amounted to was this. They poured a certain amount of water over their hands, a prescribed amount, and it ran down past the fist. Then the problem is, what do you do with, with the dirty water that's run down from your hand? If you put your hands down to eat, the dirty water runs back over your hands. So then they washed again to cleanse themselves of that unclean, un, unclean water. Now, it's that issue, you see, that preoccupied the, Sadducees, the, the Pharisees. It wasn't a question of hygiene at all. It was ceremonial cleanness. And the Pharisees were saying to Jesus that he and his disciples were unclean because they had not washed their hands in a prescribed way. Now, again, I don't say these things to ridicule Jews or or their beliefs. I'm simply saying that that's the issue that Jesus was confronting. It had nothing to do with Scripture. Nothing to do with, uh, with health. It had to do with a matter of ceremonial uncleanness. Now note the answer that Jesus gives in verse eight, 6. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right 
when he prophesied about you hypocrites? As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You, he says, have let, have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. The Lord was always very kind and merciful to people that were, were needy and weak, but he was very frontal and at times almost curt with people that were playing games. He didn't have a great deal of patience with people that were pretending. And uh, that's why he calls the, the Pharisees hypocrites, pretenders, those that are play-acting, pretending to be something that they're not. Their hearts, he says, are far from me, but with their lips they claim to, to be pleasing to me. And we saw a lot of this last Tuesday night. I had about four Darth Vaders and uh, two or three uh, Princess Leia's and a few others come knocking on my door. These were kids that were pretending or play-acting, playing a game. And I knew all of them. I'd seen them playing around the block, and I knew that they weren't Darth Vader or Princess Leia. It's harmless when, uh, when children pretend, but it's not at all harmless when adults pretend. It's a very serious thing. They were play-acting. Their hearts were far from God, but with their lips they claimed to worship him. And he says their worship is vain, it's, it's fruitless, it's empty of content, it has no meaning. It's empty worship. And then he tells them why. The reason their worship is invalid is because, he says, their teachings are but rules taught by men. In other words, they had substituted tradition for Scripture. And this was the really serious thing. You see, throughout this passage, Jesus' concern is to show us that Scripture is binding. Tradition is not. Scripture is obligatory. Tradition is optional. Scripture is supreme. Tradition is subordinate. And we must not ever come to the place that we give tradition and Scripture equal authority. Now, tradition is important to most of us. We come out of some kind of cultural background, the way we dress, the way we wear our hair, the way we uh, furnish our homes, the kind of cars we drive, the sort of interests that we have, uh, recreational interests and social interests. Those things are often cultural and traditional, and they're deeply ingrained, and they're often difficult to, uh, it's difficult to free yourself from them. But we need to recognize that though there may, it may be difficult to, to extricate ourselves from it, it's not impossible. And we must never give tradition equal weight with Scripture. Now, Jesus goes on in this passage to illustrate. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Two times in the Old Testament, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, Israel was told, uh, was given the command with regard to uh, reverence for parents, honor your mother and father. And twice in the Old Testament they were told not to speak evil of mother and father. So he's referring here to a, to a specific command of Scripture. Explicit instruction from the Word. But, verse 11, you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, 
That is a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Now again, like the Gentiles, we need a word of explanation because we don't know what korban means. Korban is an Aramaic word that means gift or dedicated. And uh, it comes from another word that means to bring a gift to God. Originally it meant to approach someone and then to approach God and then to bring a gift to God. And then the Aramaic form of that word korban means a thing that has been dedicated to God. The Jews of that day were in the practice of taking some article of furniture or something else in the house or an inheritance they received from their parents or almost anything and, and pronouncing it korban, dedicating it to God. And then by a strange sort of perversion, it became a sort of curse. If you wanted to keep something out of someone's hands, you could say korban, that thing is korban, and they couldn't touch it, even though they had legal right to it because it went to the temple. Now, let me give you an illustration. Um, when we left California, we sold our washing machine and dryer. And uh, the people came by to look at it, and the lady said, well, I'll give you a check, but I forgot my checkbook. And Carolyn said, oh, that's all right. Just mail it to us. So um, we waited a month, no check, so I wrote them a note and reminded them that uh, they owed us some money, and nothing came. So I waited another month, and I called on the phone and reminded them, and they're not going to pay us. Sort of an interesting thing. And we're kind of stuck. Now, if I were a Jew living in Jesus' day, I would say, all right, that washer and dryer is Corban. And I'd call up the local priest, and he would come by with his truck and throw the washer and dryer on and take it down to the temple, and that would be that. They couldn't touch it. And that's the way they handle things even with their parents. They get angry at a mother or father, and they would say, what I have that would profit you is korban. And they would take it out of the hands of their parents. And the strange thing is, that vow was so binding, even if their parents were starving, they couldn't touch it. And it's interesting that in the Mishnah, there's actually a legal case that concerns that issue, and this probably dates from about Jesus' time. It once happened that a man in Beth Horon, whose father was forbidden by vow to have any benefit from him, was giving his son in marriage. And he said to his fellow, The courtyard and the banquet are given to thee as a gift, but they are thine only that my father may come and eat with us at the banquet. And this is what happened. He had a vineyard, and he said, That's Corban, and he kept it out of his father's hands. And then later he felt sorry that he had done it and he wanted to make amends. And so he said to his friend, I'm going to give you the vineyard and then my father can use it. The other, the other man answered and said, Thou didst give me what is thine, only that thou and thy father may eat and drink and be reconciled. When the case came before the elders, they said, Any gift which if a man would declare korban is a valid gift. In other words, his parents couldn't have it. They couldn't have the vineyard, even though the man wanted to be reconciled with his father. Now, that's the sort of thing that was going on. And Jesus says, by doing that, you invalidate the word of God. By your interpretation of Scripture, by your traditions, you're violating a clear-cut command of Scripture. God said, honor your mother and father, and you're not doing it. 
Now that raised the the question of cleanness and uncleanness in the minds of the people. And so Jesus went on to teach in verses 14 through 23. Jesus called the crowds to him and said, the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered his, uh, the house, his disciples said to him ab- about this parable. Ask him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Uh, this, I think, was Peter's footnote. He wanted to be sure that Mark got that in uh, in his uh, little treatise here, because it was Peter, you know, to whom the Lord revealed that all foods are clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Do you understand what he's saying? The Jews, by their attempt to regulate all of life, were actually frustrating God's attempts to make men like God. These men were legalists. A legalist is someone who imposes on someone else extra-biblical rules. They elevate to the position of Scripture principles or rules that are not found in Scripture. Somehow we all, we all have the feeling that if we just have enough rules, we can regulate our lives. And Scripture doesn't have enough uh, rules, so we've got to add a few more. And that way we'll keep everyone in shape. And these traditional rules become binding. They become obligatory. They come to have the same position as Scripture in our life. And the tragedy is that it undoes what God intends to do in the heart of man. God wants to change our hearts, not regulate us from the outside. He wants us to be new men and women from the inside out. So that's the seriousness, you see, of imposing traditional rules and mores and, and patterns of living on other people. It frustrates what God is doing. So you see, it's a very serious thing. We can never say, well, we've always done it this way. We can't make that a rule of conduct. You know, it's a good exercise periodically to think through why you do what you do. Why do you behave the way you do? Your, your own system of ethics and morals, what do they come from? Do they come from your political stance? Or the traditions of your mother or father? Or something you've been taught in church or Bible Institute? Or by a young life leader? Or do they come out of Scripture? That's a good exercise. What Scripture commands, we are obliged to obey. But everything else is optional. Scripture is binding. Tradition is not. Scripture is supreme. Tradition is subordinate. And we need to judge every traditional thought and act by Scripture. I'm not saying we need to do away with tradition. There are traditional things that have meaning to all of us. We shouldn't be iconoclastic and just go around breaking every rule and regulation just because it's traditional. 
We're not anti-traditional, but we don't want to weigh out tradition and give it equal authority with Scripture. We are bound by Scripture, and what Scripture tells us we must do, everything else is optional. And you see, it's not really a matter of remaining neutral. If we don't do that, if we try to bind ourselves by extra-biblical tenets, and principles, and rules, we actually undo what God wants to do in our life. People's spiritual lives begin to disintegrate. You see, that's what Peter wanted to do when he said to the Lord, How many times should I forgive my brother? Seventy times seven? Give me a rule that will tell me how many times I ought to forgive my brother. And then, you know, the, the next time I'm going to pop him right in the mouth. And Jesus said, No. Or excuse me, Peter said seven times. And then the eighth time I, I swing. And Jesus said, No, 490 times, or in effect, an infinite number of times, you see. Because that's what Scripture teaches. Love ought to be infinite, not regulated by rules. There's a great deal of security in rules. We like them. But God never intended us to try to regulate our lives by extra-biblical rules. That's what Paul is saying in Colossians. Turn to the second chapter of Colossians. Colossians 2.8. See to it, Paul writes, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And we say, right, he's talking about the existentialists of our day or other contemporary philosophers. Well, that's true. That's true. There's a great deal of empty and, and deceitful philosophy abroad in our, on our university campuses and our high schools and junior highs. But he goes on to say, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than, than on Christ. And you, and you know there are people in evangelical churches that are teaching empty and vain philosophy because their teaching is based on human tradition and fundamental principles of the world instead of on the Word of God. And their philosophy, you know, they may be evangelical, they may be Bible-believing, but they're teaching empty philosophy because it's not according to Christ. It's not based on the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. It may be good advice, but it's not revelation. It's not scripture. And look right across the page at verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? The word translated basic principles here is the same word that occurs in verse 8. Philosophy according to the basic principles of this world. Why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining the flesh, which is exactly what, Paul, what Jesus tells us in Mark 7. You cannot control the flesh by rules. The flesh is uncontrollable apart from God's way of dealing with the flesh. You can baptize it, you can chastise it, you can simonize it, you can do everything in the world to it, and it's still going to act like flesh and look like flesh unless it's controlled by the Spirit of God using the Word of God. And that's Paul's point. Let's don't get caught up in empty philosophy that's based on tradition, that adds rules and regulations to Scripture and makes them binding, because it's of no value 
in dealing with the basic problems of humanity, it will not make us godlike. And you see, that's what we're facing as a church. The evangelical church in general needs to face that. We need to think through what we're doing and determine if what we're doing is based on tradition or scripture. If it's tradition, it may be a good idea. We might want to perpetuate it, but it's not obligatory. We're bound by scripture. That's our authority. If it's stated in Scripture, we must do it. We cannot quibble with God on on those points. But if it's not in Scripture, we're free. We may choose to do it or not do it. That's what it means to be governed by the Word of God. Now, we need to think through our own set of personal morals. It's a good exercise, as I said, to sit down and think through why you do what you do. Uh... God doesn't want you to experiment around and, and, and try different things and ruin your life. You know, the reason God is against sin is not, as I've said before, because God just arbitrarily made up a list of things that are sin and, and revealed them to us. It's because God knows what will destroy us and what will build us. And he loves what builds us up and he hates what destroys us. Christian morality, therefore, is simply loving what God loves and hating what God hates, and, you, and, and, and that you find out from Scripture. See, That's the point of the tree that God planted in the gardens. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I, it was a literal tree. I'm convinced of that. It, Adam and Eve were literal people. They were real people in real time. But that tree was symbolic. The tree itself had no deadly ingredient that, that introduced sin into the human race. It was symbolic of revelation. God wants to tell us what's right and what's wrong. He does not want us to destroy ourselves. He knows what causes humanity to shake apart, what ruins the quality of life for us. I was washing Carolyn's uh, popcorn popper the other day, and and I stuck it under the water. And uh, she said, don't do that. And I said, why? And she said, didn't you read the directions? And sure enough, in the directions, it said, don't immerse this... uh, this appliance, and I was sticking it down in the water, you see. And the directions are there because you, you ruin things like that, I discovered, if you stick them in the water. And you see, that's why God has revealed the truth to us. He knows what will destroy us. He gives wisdom. Let's don't trust our own wisdom and try to decide what's right, what's wrong. Trust God and his word. And if we had time, I'd like to think through some of the the, the, the traditional ways that we as Christians have of acting that are based in tradition and not in Scripture, but I, that's not what I want to emphasize this morning. Because of our, of our time tonight dealing with how we as a body function, I want to think through a couple of, of issues as they relate to church life together. And uh, just to take one out of a lot of examples, let's, let's think about meetings. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, that's what church was to me. It was meetings. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Saturday morning, Thursday afternoon, Tuesday lunch. It was meetings, 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 until they got to be a real drag. Now, what does Scripture tell us about meetings? When did they meet? 
Why did they meet? What did they do when they met? Where did they meet? Those are all interesting things to think through. And out of all, you know, there's so many things we could talk about. But that's one issue that we need to think through. Where did the early church meet? Well, they didn't have buildings until the 4th century. They met in synagogues in the beginning. You know, some people are a little concerned about the fact that we're meeting in a Catholic high school. Some portion of our church is meeting there. And because of the symbolism, it's a little offensive to them. But can you imagine what it would be like to worship in a synagogue with the Torah and the Ark and all of the symbols that, that relate to the Old Covenant? And yet that's where they worship. By the time James was written, they were worshiping in synagogue. It's the word he uses when someone comes into your synagogue. Uh, they met in homes. They met in the catacombs. That would be equivalent to meeting in a cemetery today. They met in fields. They met wherever they could. They didn't have buildings until the 4th century after the Edict of Constantine. I was reading last week in a, a journal describing a, a, a dig in Syria where they have found a 3rd century church, actually 4th century church, and it goes all the way back to about the 2nd the century. And what they find is a is a house first. The lowest levels are those of a house or the living room. And they know it's a church or a church met there because there's Christian graffiti on the walls. And uh, it's just a very small room. And then uh, after a period of time, they knock the wall down and they add a, a little extension on the, the living room, which kind of gives you an idea of what was going on. They started a home Bible study and people started coming and it got too big. And so they said, shucks, we'll just knock the wall down and make, it, make the house bigger. So they outgrew that structure, so they knocked the whole house down and built a bigger house. So they have a great big room to meet in. And they met there for, for a number of years, and finally that was destroyed, and from the 4th century on there's a, there's a Byzantine chapel built right on that spot. But it began as a house. It's all they had. Didn't have buildings. So that tells us something about a building. We may need one. We may not. A building doesn't constitute the church. This building is not the church. You're the church. This building just keeps the rain off. Anything would do. Actually, our sign out here that says Cole Community Church is in error. This is the meeting place of Cole Community Church. We could meet anywhere. Now, a building is nice. And it may be that we have to have a building because of various, uh, because of the situation here. But we don't have to have one. When did meetings occur? Well, the early church met on the Lord's Day, as far as we can tell from the book of Acts. That was Sunday morning, or Sunday, sometimes Sunday. I, see, I'm a traditionalist too. I said Sunday morning because we don't know. But nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to worship on Sunday morning. It doesn't occur. That's when they worship, and it's appropriate because that's when the Lord rose but there's no command in the New Testament that says we have to meet on Sunday morning. We can meet on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock or 4 o'clock Thursday morning. Or we could have a sportsman's uh, worship service on Friday morning so all you hunters could have a chance to, to worship. All sorts of things can be done because there's nothing in Scripture about the time of meeting. There's nothing in Scripture about a Sunday night service. There's nothing in Scripture about the Sunday school. You know, Sunday school was unheard of prior to the 20th century or late 19th century. 
A man in London felt sorry for the little street urchins because they had no place to be taught the scripture on Sunday mornings. They went to school all week and they worked all day Saturday and uh, they weren't being taught the scriptures at home and so this man began to meet with them on Sunday mornings and he called it Sunday school because they weren't being taught at home. And what scripture tells us about the education of children is that we ought to be teaching children at home and if we have Sunday school at all, it ought to be supportive of what we're already doing in our homes. Now, I'm not saying we ought to do away with the Sunday school. Not at all. It's an extremely valuable tool. But it's merely a tradition. And on and on we could go. You see, through all, the, all of these, uh, these matters. When we meet, where we meet, what we do when we meet. Have you ever thought about the fact that our churches, the way they're built architecturally, focus on the preacher? You sit out there, and I stand up here and talk, and you listen to me. How sad can you get? You know how the early church met? They taught one another. There are people sitting out there with, with the gift of, of teaching and encouragement and instruction. We need to hear from you, not just my point of view. That's the way the early church met. They instructed one another. Each member of the body used his gift. But you see, traditionally, we've set up churches like this because we've drifted away from the biblical pattern. Now you come and hear me or someone else teach. But that's traditional. That's not biblical. And the examples are legion. What I'm saying is we need to think scripturally and base what we do on scripture. Not be ruthless in our disregard of tradition because it may be important. But let's don't give it the authority that we give Scripture and let's never let our tradition turn us away from acting biblically. You see, that's what the Jews were doing. It, 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 because of their commitment to tradition, they nullified the truth of God and that's what we must never do. We'll never be God's people if we do. And you know what we as elders long for in this church is that, that we as a body of believers would be known for the things that Paul says he looked for in the churches of his day. When he writes to the church of, at Thessaloniki, he does not say you were known throughout the world because of your programs for youth. Or you're known throughout the world because of your beautiful building or your choir or your pastor. He says you're known for the fact that you love each other and you, and you have faith, you believe God and you're full of hope and the gospel from you is going out throughout Macedonia and Achaia and the whole world. That's what we want to be known for. As people look at us here at Cole Community Church, they ought to say, my, how they love each other. They really care for each other. Those are people who believe God. You see, these other, God may give us a building. He may give us programs. These things are all servants to be used. But that's not what we want to be known for. That's not the essential nature of the church. As we've said before on Sunday night, the three key issues are faith in the Lord Jesus, love for one another, and witness to the world. And those are the things that we ought to be known for. Let's ask God to give it to us. Father, we all of us are in some sense bound by our past and we need to be freed up. It takes a great deal of courage and yet we, we know that you're the one who strengthens us to act according to the truth. 
Whatever it costs, you're the one who provides the resources, and we thank you. As we gather tonight, we ask that you grant to us a spirit of wisdom and understanding and love for one another. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.